0: Alright, welcome to Journey, Saturday night edition. Glad you guys made it here. How many you guys are glad to be here? Anybody glad to be here? Alright, half of you. Alright, we'll take it. Alright, we need to pray then, because the rest of you guys need to get happy, okay? So, Lord, we thank you for, for this, this day that you've given us. And we know that each day that you give us is not a day that's given to us in vain, and so, so tonight we just come with anticipation and expectation that you have something that you want to accomplish in us, As we hear your word, and as we go to you, and we lean on you, and we learn from you, Holy Spirit, thank you for being in this place. Thank you for for touching lives in ways that words can't. And I just come with expectation, believing that's going to happen tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. We're in week two of our series called Reckless Love. And if you were here last week, uh, you'll remember that we started off in this book of Ruth, and uh, there was, it actually starts off with Elimelech and Naomi. They have a famine in their, their home country, so they leave and they take their sons. And they all the just long story short, you can read it yourself. But all the guys die <laughs> in the story. And uh, then Naomi wants to go back. And so Ruth, in this extremely loyal act to her mother in law, uh, she goes back with her and says, Wherever you go, I'll go. Wherever you die, I'll die. Your God will be my God. My God. Your God will be my God. Your people will be my people. And so we, we saw that last week, and that loyalty is, is faithfulness in task and our allegiance. It's faithfulness and task and allegiance. We saw uh, that Ruth was displaying that on an extreme level uh, last week. So this week, we're going to actually look at just four verses. We're going to come out of the rest of chapter one, and there's just there's really just a handful of scriptures here, four or five scriptures here at the end. And let me read them to you. It says, So the two of them continued on their journey, that's Ruth and Naomi, and when they came to Bethlehem, the entire, entire town was excited by their arrival. Is it really Naomi? The women asked. No, she said, Don't call me Naomi, she responded. Instead, call me Mara, for the Almighty has made life very bitter for me. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me home empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has caused me to suffer and the Almighty has sent such tragedy upon me? So Naomi returned from Moab, accompanied by her daughter-in-law Ruth, the young Moabite woman. And they arrived in Bethlehem in late spring at the beginning of the barley harvest. So Naomi's gone away and she's had this not-so-great experience, to put it mildly. She's had a horrible tragedy in, in her life. So the question we're going to wrestle with today is, what do you do when your experience or your experiences in life don't line up with what you believe or know is or hope is God's word in your life or God's will for your life? What do you do when the experience that you're going through doesn't seem to line up with what you see in Scripture or with what your expectations were? Let me just personalize it a little bit for our congregation because I know several people are going through a lot of things, even just right here in this church. Maybe it's a loss of a loved one. Maybe it's a, a dream that... Uh, you thought was going to happen but it didn't happen and it seems to have died. Maybe it's a a breakthrough that was supposed to happen a year and a half, two years ago and it still hasn't happened. Maybe it's a a future mate that seems just out of reach. Maybe it's, uh, I mean, it it could be anything. Maybe it could be a marriage that just seems beyond repair. These are all real stories that we are experiencing and I could go on and on and on because there are several of us who have experienced these things in our life and the question is, what do you do when your experience doesn't seem to line up with what you think or what you've heard God's will is supposed to be for your life or God's best is for your life? So what do you do? And I'm going to say this right at the front because it's going to be a reoccurring theme that we're going to come back to. And I want you to get this and write this down if you have to, put, put it to memory, whatever it is, but, but I want you to get this. We can allow experiences to refine us, but we can't allow them to define us. We can allow experiences, bad experiences, to refine us, but we can't allow them to define us. So that word refine, it it literally means this, to free from impurities or unwanted material, to improve by polishing or pruning. So we can go through bad experiences and we can allow God to use those bad experiences to prune things out of our life, to change things in our heart, to remove unwanted things. But here's what the definition of define is to determine or identify essential qualities or meaning of. We can't allow the experiences that we go through to determine or identify essential qualities of, or the meaning of our lives. Or it also means to fix or marks to mark limits of. So we can't allow experiences to fix or mark the limits of how we continue to live our life. We can allow them to refine us, but we can't allow them to define us. Now, a few years ago, I saw this movie called Unbroken. How many of you guys have seen this movie Unbroken? All right, several of you guys have. It's it's this movie. It's a true story. And when I saw this movie, it was so impactful to me because you've got to know the backstory too, which we will look at a little bit today. But it's about this guy named Louis Zamperini, and he was uh, he had a troubled childhood. He wasn't doing so great, but he he found that he could run, and he could run. Fast, and so eventually he started to turn his life around he began to run. He, he, he actually became an Olympic athlete. I mean he, Olympics and he was running, and, and, and his life seemed to be going really well. Uh, he joined the army. And then as he joined the army as he's flying in the in the war his plane gets shot down and him and a couple of buddies go into the ocean and then there they are in the middle of the ocean and they somehow survived miraculously I mean for like 47 days out at sea I think it's one of the longest if not the longest somebody like really survived uh, up until that point for sure and so it was a miraculous thing that they even survived then they finally get rescued, only they get rescued by the Japanese. And they, that's not much of a rescue. They get put into a prisoner uh, prison camp. There was the, one, one of the main uh, guards there. His name was Bird. And he just relentlessly tortured him and sought him out and just came after him. And this went on uh, and on and on. If anybody had a reason to think that he got the short end of the straw in life... It was this guy. I mean, everything just kept going from bad to worse, from bad to worse. And so, I wanna watch just a little bit of a clip of this to, to kinda of let you know a little bit more about him. So let's watch.
1: After the crash, Louis and Phil were taken to an island called Kwajalein that was already notorious among American airmen. It was called Execution Island because everyone who had been taken there had been executed by the Japanese.
2: It's a funny feeling. You're sitting there and and your date has been set and you're going to be decapitated. Oh, God. it's, It's hard to live with that thought in your mind.
1: One of the men who was in on the conference where they decided to execute these two airmen recognized that louis was a famous runner an olympian and that he had propaganda potential so they decided to keep these two alive so that they could take louis to japan and try to force him to make propaganda broadcasts against america
2: in america when you're missing an action they have to wait a year before they declare you dead so the minute they declared me dead in america the japanese used that for propaganda and they condemned America, and then they were taking credit for my survival. Hello, America. This is a Postman
3: calling. He was officially given up as dead and
2: missing. We assure, Mrs. Zamperini, that such is not the case. The next voice heard will be that of 1st Lieutenant, Tracy Zamperini.
3: This is your lawyer talking. This will be the first time in two and one half years that you will have hurt my
2: voice. And then they handed me this propaganda sheet, and I read it and I said, I can't do it. There's no way I can do it. I'd rather be dead than to uh, a turn on my country. They were trying to break me, and then the worst thing was the bird was always after me. So in a barracks of 70 men, I would always stand way in the back. So when they came around for inspection with his two guards, he wouldn't see me. But he comes in with the two guards, and the guards holler, just, hey, everybody comes to attention. He's looking for me, maybe for six or eight seconds. Ah, Zamperini, you you come to attention last. Big lie, just so he could take his big, heavy belt off and with a, about a pound and a half steel buckle. And oh God, he hit me in the temple. And I don't—I just hit the deck so fast I can't remember. In prison camp, you focus on determination. You don't want to die. That's a race for life, and you want to win, and you won't give up. There's much talent in Omori camp. We have an opera singer. Who is the opera singer? We have a chef from Sydney, Australia. And we have an Olympic athlete. Who is the Olympic athlete? Who is the Olympic athlete?
0: Now, I've, I've shown the tame parts <laughs> of that experience, um, but he had a horrible experience in life, and uh, he almost let it define him, but in the end, as we'll see here towards the end of the message, that he didn't let it do that, and, so, and we'll see some things about that as, as to why, but what I want to do today is I want to look at three temptations that we tend to face whenever we have a bad experience in life, three temptations that we tend to face. When we have a bad experience in life. And we're going to also look at three truths that we need to be reminded of when we face these temptations. And so if you're going through something today, this is going to be very, very helpful to you. If you're not, hang on to it because it could be helpful to you one day. The first temptation that we end up facing whenever we go through a bad situation or a bad experience in our life is this. Number one, we're tempted to let our experiences define our identity. We see that here in these first few scriptures that we looked at in Ruth. Ruth chapter 1, verse 20. She said to them, do not call me Naomi, which her name literally meant sweetness. She said, don't call me sweet. Call me Mara, which means bitter, for the Almighty has caused me great grief and bitterness. So Naomi does something here, a big mistake. She incorrectly labels herself. Labels define use. In other words, the way the, the reason something is labeled is to help you determine how to use that thing or what it's to be used for. How many of you guys love hot food? Anybody love hot food? All right, how many of you guys your pain tolerance for hot food is very very little. In fact, like basically none non-existent, right? All right, some of you guys do not like hot. Now we had our uh, chili cook off last fall and uh, Pastor Aaron and I we like to make hot hot chili and so they they end up trying to label our chili like like spicy or like goals and stuff. I don't know what they put on there because we like it really uh, spicy. Now, I'll just tell you, I'm tempted, I'm always tempted to switch the labels around (laughs) just to watch people, you know. How you guys know that'd be a bad day, right? Because that label is there for a purpose. It's there to protect you. It's there to define what you're supposed to use it for and how you're supposed to use it. Labels define use. The same is true for us. Our labels will set the boundaries an application for how we can be used by God. So labels are very, very important. And when we let our experiences begin to put us in the wrong box, we begin to limit what God can do through us and what God wants to do in us. And so how we label things is very important. How we identify and our identity is extremely important. So that's the temptation. Now here's the truth that I want you to get. And you may have heard this before, but you need to be reminded of it today. The truth is this. The only one who can define you is the one who made you. Let me say that again. The only one who can define you Is the one who made you. So any other outside attempt, an even internal attempt that you make to define yourself by something other than what God defines you as, is buying into the temptation and it's buying into the lie. How many of you guys have heard of something called the Enneagram? All right, some of you guys. All right, for those of you guys who haven't, we've, just, we've had fun with it as a conversation around our house lately and around just some, some people lately. And if you don't know, to oversimplify what the Enneagram is, it's kind of like a personality identifier or to identify your motivations as to why you do what you do. There's nine different types and so it's really interesting to kind of, to, to, by the way, don't take a test online. Those things are worthless. So, but, but when you hear about what it is and you kind of like, okay, I, I, I can see that's kind of who I am. And so we've been having that conversation, and my wife Beck and I had that conversation. I'm a certain number as far as what I'm looking at, and she's a certain number. We found this thing online that kind of identifies what would happen if my number married her number. And so then we read off a couple paragraphs of what it would look like if this person, this number married that number. And we sat there and we were just, our jaw was dropping. We're like, oh my gosh, you just described 22 years of our marriage right there. We were like, you, I mean, have you been like a fly on the wall in our house? And we were just, I mean, it was now, here's what happens. Sometimes a lot of people will push back on those things, and I get why they will push back on those things, because uh, how many of you guys are like, I don't want to be put into a box, right? I don't want to be put into a box. And, and I love, as I was, I was hearing about this, that I heard that pushback uh, as I was listening to different podcasts and stuff. And, and they said, well, the Enneagram doesn't put you in a box. The Enneagram is supposed to identify what box you're already in, and to move you beyond it. And I thought, oh, that's a much better way to look at these things instead of trying to put myself in a box. And the reason I say all of that is because bad experiences in your life try to put you into a box. And here's what I, and and it says like you're a failure, you're a loser, you're a mistake, you're always going to do this, you're never going to be doing that, you're hurt, you're broken, you're in Naomi's case, you're you are bitterness. Not just you have bitterness, but you are bitterness. That is who you are. And here's what I love about the Holy Spirit and the conviction of the Holy Spirit. And when the Holy Spirit begins to work in your life, the Holy Spirit doesn't put you in a box. The Holy Spirit helps reveal to you the box you're already in and help you to move beyond it. And see, we have to understand the work of the Holy Spirit in our life. You, you know, as I, if, if I could just sit down and have a conversation with Naomi, I, I would say something like this. Naomi, you have had a bad experience. But I want you to know that you are not Bitterness. You, have, you may have bitterness in your life, but you are not a failure. You are not a tragedy. You, you may have this, but you are not that thing. You are not going to stay in that box. And if I could sit down and have a conversation with each one of you and identify, and through the Holy Spirit identify what box you've let your bad experience put you in, I want you to know you are not that. Is that good news for anybody tonight? That the Holy Spirit can take whatever box you find yourself in and help you move beyond it. I watched something this week that as I watched it, I can't tell you exactly what happened to me as I watched it, but something kind of clicked inside of me when I watched this. And so I felt like I was supposed to show this to you guys as well, in the hopes that the same thing will happen for you. So let's watch.
3: We are not mere mortals fumbling about in the dark, We are a royal priesthood called out of darkness into his marvelous light to show the world what God looks like, to show the world what his love looks like, to show the world what God's wisdom looks like, to show the world what God's peace looks like. And I want to say to you, church, maybe the root of all of our struggles is You don't actually know how much power you really have. You you, you don't actually understand how much authority you actually have. Moms, if you're the parent that stays at home, you're not just a mom. Do you know how much power you have to bless your child, to speak into them, to shape them? If you're the dad that stays home, fathers, do you know how much power you have Like fathers, maybe men have abdicated our roles in in, in our households and in our relationships because we think, well, it doesn't really matter if I'm here or not because the house just carries on running. Do you know how much power you really have to look your child in the eye and say, I love you? Do you know how much authority comes with your words? You're not just a salesperson just a realtor or just a construction worker or just a nurse you're a king and a queen on that construction site you're royalty in that college class you're a representative of king jesus in the world and so when you step into these places it's not your paycheck that makes you matter it's not your job description that makes you significant. It's the fact that you're made in the image of God. Crowned with glory, Psalm 8 says. Paul says, seated with Christ in the heavenly places. A child and also an heir. And you say, you know, this world is a little bit messed up. But in my little corner of the world today, God helped me to reflect your wisdom. God helped me to represent your love. God, help me to show what you're like as I go to my community college class today, as I, as I stay at home in the care of children today, as I step into a classroom to teach students today, wherever you go, you go as a royal representative of King Jesus.
0: Amen. Label, it defines use and we've got to get it right. Our identity. Second temptation that we, whenever we have a bad experience is this, we are tempted to let our experiences define our theology. And you can fill in the blank whatever your experience is and whatever theology you're tempted to define or redefine because of that. And we see Naomi begin to do this. Watch this in Ruth chapter 1 verse 20. She says, don't call me Naomi, she responded. Instead, call me Mara, for the Almighty has made life very bitter for me. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me home empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has caused me to suffer and the Almighty has sent such tragedy upon me? Naomi made a huge mistake here. She blamed God for her tragedy. Now, let me just say this. You have to be very careful when reading Scripture. And I see people misread scripture all the time. You have to be very careful when reading scripture because just because a character in the story responds a certain way to the situation or uh, maybe uh, says something about God or says something about the situation doesn't automatically mean that that's the correct perspective that we are to have as believers. And it doesn't mean that it's automatically theologically correct. And that's why you have to be very careful when you read stuff like the book of Job and read stories like this. Because you see examples of people in scripture who respond to God or ascribe things to God that just because they say something in the story does not mean it's theologically accurate. Is anybody following me? So you have to be very careful in how you read scripture because sometimes we can get spin off in a whole wrong way of thinking because we see tragedy in scripture and we see ways certain people responded to tragedy in scripture and then we think that that is the way that we are to respond and that is not necessarily the case because here she is blaming God for her tragedy and can I tell you that God is not going to bring tragedy into your life. Boy, I should have got a lot better amen out of that. Amen. God is not God is a loving father who loves his kids. He is not going to put sickness on you. He is not going to bring a tragedy into your life to try to teach you a lesson. He doesn't do those things. He can take all things and work them together for good, but he is not the causer of those things. And so we have to be careful that whenever we have a bad experience, we then don't try to change our theology and our perspective of who God is and how God works based on our bad experience. Do you realize that I don't know is a much better uh, perspective than God did this? And in fact, it can be very freeing just to simply say, I don't know why. That's a much better, if you've got to choose one, that's a much better place than to say God did this. And as a pastor, I've seen people try to go through tragedy and try to say, well, this must be God's will somehow. And they try to work it all out in in mental gymnastics. And I'm just telling you, God is a loving father. We can ask the question why, but then eventually we have to start asking a different question, what I think is a better question, which is what now? And the the reason we have to ask a, a question of what now whenever we have a bad experience is because there's always two sides to every story. When when we do marriage counseling around here, marriage counseling doesn't even start until we get two people in the same room. Because there's two sides to every single story. There's no way. Do you realize there's two sides to every story? There's Satan's version and there's God's version. And part of our work is to choose to believe God over the enemy. And Satan will use anything to try to twist it around to paint God in a bad light. And so you've got to be careful whenever you start to use your imagination and you start to say, well, maybe this and maybe that, and it starts off as a very small thought that begins to lead to another thing because you may end up in a theological place or a way you think about God or a way you think about Scripture that you never intended to be simply because you chose to listen to the wrong story. Uh, at, at TNT, our, our encounter God and through worship and prayer night we had the other, the other night a couple weeks ago, Uh, I was standing right down here and I felt like just God impressed upon me really strongly to get up here and to encourage people to to get rid of a victim spirit. And I I said victim spirit, I didn't say a victim attitude because sometimes we can all like, oh, I'm the victim or whatever. I was talking about a a demonic spirit at work in and around people's lives. And, and as we did that, I had somebody ask me after that and they said, do you believe, so are you saying, do you believe that a Christian who's filled with the Holy Spirit can be possessed by a demon? And I said, no, I don't believe that a Christian who is filled with the Spirit can be possessed by a demon. But I do believe that there can be an oppression of demonic spirits around where you begin to uh, allow things to happen around your life. But here's the thing, at any point when we recognize the enemy at work, we we can say, we resist you, Satan, and you have to flee, right? And, And so here's the thing, I've seen so many believers, and I'll say this strongly, choose to allow the presence of the enemy in their life, because he brings it in such a package that makes us feel good about it. And even though maybe if we pulled back long enough, we would understand it's wrong, but we've allowed the enemy to be at work around our life. And we're believers, but we're still allowing, and we haven't resisted the enemy. We haven't resisted him, and so he hasn't hasn't taken off. And so when you have a bad experience, who you choose to agree with matters. Who you choose to agree with is the game changer. So here's the truth that you need to get, that we all need to get and be reminded of. Faith is trusting in what God says instead of trusting in what we see. And I'm going to say this really really strong because as I was writing this message I felt like God was impressing upon me to say this strong in this moment and so for some of you you need to hear this strong. I'm like one of those type of people that I just need like just give me the strong medicine, okay? Just give it to me strong, right? And so here's the way that I heard it. Stop agreeing with the devil. Stop agreeing with the devil. You've got two options, and your eyes are telling you one thing, but you know the truth. Stop agreeing with the devil. Our experiences do not have permission to change our theology. Is this de- denying reality? You say, well, you're just denying reality. No, this is not denying reality, this is clinging to the truth. This is clinging to what God says over what my eyes see. This is trusting what God says more than what I see in my own sight. Faith is believing what God says over what I see. Number three, the last temptation that we're tempted whenever we have a bad experience in our life is this. We're tempted to let our experiences define our possibilities. And we get back into that box of what our limitations are. And Naomi got this one right, okay? We see this here in Ruth chapter 1, verse 22. So Naomi returned from Moab, accompanied by her daughter-in-law Ruth, the young Moabite woman. They arrived in Bethlehem in late spring at the beginning of the barley harvest. What we see here is a brand new season. What we see here in Naomi is that she believes that even though she's had a bad tragedy in life, that she's had a bad experience in life, there can be a new day. Today can be a brand new day. This can be the brand new season. I don't have to stay stuck in the tragedy. I can move beyond it. And that's what we see out of Naomi. Now, here we, we've got to ask ourselves a question. Will we choose to walk in a new season or stay stuck in the old? Here's the truth I want you to get. Our past does not define our possibilities. Jesus does. So I want to wrap up with this video of, of Louis Zamperini who... In the midst of what seems like an impossibility, how could he possibly move forward? How could he possibly forgive? How could he possibly do that in the midst of all of this? And yet we see God's hand at work. And I want to encourage you that no matter what impossibility you're facing today, that God is a God of the impossible. And Jesus can make your impossible possible because he is good and he is God. So let's watch.
1: He went through some terrible years where he was destroying his marriage but Louie was saved by his wife's insistence that he go to see a sermon by Billy Graham who at that time was a very young man not very well known but he was speaking in Los Angeles. Louie didn't want to go but his wife was going to leave him and he agreed on that basis to go see him speak and He sat in the back of the audience and he was unhappy and he was sullen, but Graham spoke of things that resonated with Louis, with his experience about how God reaches into people's lives and helps them get through things that seem unsurvivable.
2: I think all the prisoners had basically made the same prayer. Get me home alive to my family, God, and I'll seek you, I'll serve you. And you make promises while you're under a dire situation. But uh, how many of them keep their promise? I didn't. And so my life fell apart.
1: And it was at that moment that he made this realization to, to himself that he thought God had actually helped him through this. And he owed God something. And he realized what he needed to do.
2: So I went forward in the meeting and made my confession of faith in Christ, and I couldn't believe what happened. While I was still on my knees, my life changed in a matter of moments, because I knew I was through getting drunk, and I knew that I forgave my guards, and I knew it was a miracle because I forgave the bird, (laughs) And, and that was the first night. The first night in two and a half years, I didn't have a nightmare, and I haven't had one since. And Louis realized that God can forgive him for all the rotten things he did in his life, that he ought to be able to forgive those that had done him wrong. So forgiving the guards and the bird uh, was actually salvation for him. It really turned him around in an instant.
1: He decided he needed to test his forgiveness, to see if he really had truly achieved it. And he went back to Japan to meet the guards who had, who had abused him so terribly. And he went to Sugamo Prison, where they were all being held for war crimes.
2: He went to every single one, looked him in the eye, and told him that he forgave him for mm-hmm. the treatment that he received when he was a prisoner of war.
1: He felt no animosity. He just felt compassion and they couldn't believe it. He couldn't believe it. It was it was a wonderful experience. He knew he had truly forgiven them.
0: I think it's incredible that he forgave them. That's a lesson that he taught my father and me. By hating somebody, I'm not hurting them. I'm only hurting myself. You can forgive anybody. Forgiveness is always possible. This is always possible. I don't have the worship team come back up at this time. We're going to get ready to receive communion. And I want you to allow the Holy Spirit to let whatever you have said is impossible become possible. To let whatever box you've been put in to say, no, the Holy Spirit can bring me out of this box. Whatever temptation to change your identity or your possibilities or your theology, whatever it is. And in order to do that, I'm going to wrap up and tell you something extremely important. A pastor friend of mine was talking with me a week or two ago. And we were talking about churches and just the church world as we do. And we were talking about how some churches, you know, as kind of we can get into a routine. And we are talking about churches, how sometimes some of the churches have like an exact number of minutes. This is what worship has to be. This is what the announcements have to be. This is what, like, so many minutes for the sermon. And uh, and he said something to me. He said, Sean, I, he goes, I think revival's coming. He said, if we want to be a part of it, we have to, basically, we have to repent of our sin of convenience. That we just want to have a sin. We want to have everything convenient. And because of that, we basically are not able to allow God to move in our life because it's more convenient to stay where we are. And I think it's true. We value convenience so much that we sacrifice what God wants to do in our life. And that's why so many of us allow a bad experience to define us because of the sin of convenience. Because it's much easier to stay where we are. It's much easier to hate where we are. It's much easier to say that it's impossible. It's much easier to say we can't go back. It's much easier to say that we are a failure. It's much easier. It's much more convenient. But I've got good news for you guys today. Jesus can do the heavy lifting if we surrender. We don't have to carry it. Jesus can do the heavy lifting if we surrender. And so that's what we're gonna do as we come to the table. There's tables in back, there's tables in front. And basically what we're gonna do is we're gonna come and just surrender. We're just gonna come with a heart of surrender. And we're gonna take the cup, which represents the blood that Jesus spilled for us and that he washed away our sins. And it gives us the, the hope that not only that we can be forgiven, that we can forgive other people. And we take the body, which is represented in the cracker, and we're going to take that and we're going to be reminded that, it's, that if, if Jesus died on the cross, he took our place and he rose from the dead, that our identity can be in him and it doesn't have to be in our own strength, that he can do the heavy lifting even when we're weak. And so would you stand up with me? We're getting ready to pray and then we're going to come and we're going to, during this last song, we're going to take the elements of communion and take them back to our seat. And then we're going to just have a moment there with God. And we're just going to have a moment where we reflect and we say, God, with you, all things are possible. And so, Lord, we thank you so much for your sacrifice for us. We thank you so much that even though we go through different experiences in life, they can refine us. They can make us better. They can chip off some of the things that need to be chipped off. But but we won't let them define us because you are the only one who can define who we are. And, Lord, I just pray right now for a breakthrough for people. That if, if come up against a wall of impossibility, we just speak right now, we speak breakthrough in the name of Jesus because of what you've done for us in Jesus' name. Amen, let's come and receive.